so today we're going to do something a little bit differently, actually, while we read the scripture, because this is a psalm that is a liturgical psalm, and I want to invite you, there's a, there's a chorus, and I want you to read the chorus while I read the verses. Um, so let's begin. It'll be obvious. You're going to say, his love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders. Who by his understanding made the heavens. Who spread out the earth upon the waters. Who made the great lights. The sun to govern the day, the moon and stars to govern the night, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, to him who divided the Red Sea asunder and brought Israel through the midst of it, but swept Pharaoh into and his army into the Red Sea, to him who led his people through the wilderness, to him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to his servant Israel. He remembered us in our low estate and freed us from our enemies. He gives food to every creature. All right, say this last one like you mean it. You ready? <laughs> Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. You can be seated. All right. Well, um, The Office is one of my go-to TV shows when I'm kind of out of energy at the end of a long day looking for something uh, that can just kind of play in the background. You guys have a show like that? The Office was like number one on, the, on Netflix for years and years, even though it finished 10 years ago. And uh, because of that, because I've watched it so many times, it's kind of always just like living in the back of my head. Um, and as I read this psalm, I was actually reminded of one of the episodes in season three where there's this squeaky chair that's being passed around the office. And as different people get saddled with it, they're really unhappy. And one, at one point, there's a woman who gets it and... Just to annoy her coworkers, she keeps rocking back and forth, making the, the squeaking noise. And so then Jim, who's one of the main characters in the show, starts to sing. Love me, love me, say that you love me, fool me, fool me. And the, the lady who's doing it is like, whoa, 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 stop that. That, that song is going to be stuck in my head for the rest of the day. <laughs> that is not a proportionate response to what I'm doing. 
I was thinking about that. You know, there are, there are songs like that, right? Songs that once you hear the chorus, it is stuck in your head. It's in there, whether you like it or not, it's impossible to get rid of it. You just have to wait that enough time passes <laughs> that you forget that you were thinking about it. Well, I thought about that scene because this psalm that we just read, of course, it has a chorus in it, and it's one I wish that we could get stuck in our heads. It's one, in fact, I hope that we will get it stuck in our heads. I'm praying that we can get this chorus stuck in our head this morning. Because this chorus, this refrain, his love endures forever, is one our entire existence is built around. It's a refrain that explains to us who God is. It's a refrain that if we really take it in, it can become a seed of revival in our lives and in the church. And so that's where we're going to go this morning. That's where we're headed. What I want you to see is that knowing this chorus does a few things. It teaches us about the uniqueness of God's love. It transforms the way that we love each other, and then it creates a family that the whole world is searching for. It teaches, it transforms, and it creates. Okay, so first, it, it teaches us. Um, we've said this every week, but I want to repeat it in case you don't know. The Psalms, they are a collection of songs that have been sung by God's people all throughout history. And it's likely that this psalm, uh, when it was originally sung, was done kind of like we just did it when we read. There would be one group of people singing the verses and another group of people singing the refrain. And it strikes me as we read that out loud, I know there's some of you here who've, who've said you, you don't really like worship songs that repeat too much. You don't like the ones that say the same thing over and over again, and that's fine. Everyone here is welcome to our own preferences on the kinds of music we like, but I want to encourage you, you can no longer say it's because they aren't biblical. In fact, as you look at this song, actually what you see is the thing that makes this a very powerful worship song, a very powerful aid to our understanding of God is the repetition. The repetition is where the power is. This song is very beautifully written, and it is expertly crafted to teach us. And not just that simple phrase that his love endures forever, but it's actually trying to teach us what those words really mean. As we keep coming back to them over and over again, as we keep thinking about them, as maybe even you're getting tired of saying them over and over again. See, and, and here's how it works. Let me just kind of lay it out for you on a map. The psalm, it is showing us God's history of working in the world, especially throughout Scripture. Verses 1 through 3, it tells us who God is. It tells us he's the, the Lord of lords. He's the God of gods. He's the one who alone does great wonders. And then it starts going through scripture, telling us everything God's done. First, it tells us about creation. Then it tells us about his deliverance when he delivered Israel from generations of slavery. That took place in the book of Exodus. 
Then it talks about the miraculous parting of the Red Sea. Then it talks about the years of wandering through the wilderness that you read in the book of Numbers. Then it talks about when he defeated the, the enemies of God. And then finally when he gave them this land that he promised to them. And what's cool, what you notice, all this stuff is in chronological order. It follows the order of the Hebrew scriptures. But it keeps building. And he finally builds up to this statement in verse 23 where he says, he remembers us in our low estate and freed us from our enemies. So the message is simple. God is, was not only faithful way back then, in all those big moments that we can read about, but he continues to prove himself faithful to us. Each and every day, right up until this very moment. And the word that ties all of this psalm together is that word hesed. His love endures forever. The last word is, is hesed. Hesed is a word I mentioned a few months ago maybe. We had a slide about it, but it bears repeating. It's an important word in scripture. It is a multifaceted concept. It is this special word that the Old Testament uses to describe God's love, his loyal love, his unbreakable love to his promised people. It's a term that describes covenantal love. Now, a covenant is a promise. That's kind of how we understand it in English. But it's, it's also more of a formal binding contract. When you look through scripture, God's covenant with his people is this formal agreement that he has entered into with his people throughout history. And the best way I know how to explain that is just to, to look at the story where we see it in scripture. Uh, Genesis 15. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip there or you can just look up on the screen. But Genesis 15, in that chapter, God, he comes to Abram. Abraham, who would eventually become the father of the nation of Israel, he comes to him and he makes him this promise. He says, I am going to give you many descendants. I'm going to bring you into this great and blessed and fruitful land. I'm going to be your God. You are going to be my people. And Abraham says, well, how can I know that for sure? And we read in Genesis 15 this interesting event it says when the sun had set oh actually right before that it says in verse 9 God says to him bring me a heifer a goat and a ram each three years old along with a dove and a young pigeon Abraham brought all these to him cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite to each other. Okay, to us that sounds pretty strange, I imagine. But you have to understand what's going on in this little account. Because this is a world way before, you know, e-signatures, verified emails. It's a world even before pen and paper. And so if you're trying to imagine how you would make a binding contract with someone, well, there would have to be a ceremony for that. And in the ancient world, the way that you would go through one of these covenant ceremonies is you would bring these sacrificial animals, 
and you would cut them in half and you would separate them. And then the two parties entering into the agreement would, would walk together arm in arm through the midst of these creatures. And there was a message as a part of this ceremony. The message was pretty simple. It was, if I do not hold up my end of this bargain, then whatever has happened to these animals, would it happen to me? And likewise, if you do not keep your end of the bargain, then whatever has happened to these animals, will it happen also to you? And so you would expect some kind of arrangement like that to happen immediately after God orders this. But instead, we read that verse that I just had up on the screen. He says, When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. God, or Ab Abram sees God go through it by himself. What's the sign? Well, the sign is, if, you, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, well, then what has happened to these animals, would it happen to me? But Abram, if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, then what has happened to these animals, would it happen to me instead? And this is the promise that is getting played out in this scripture in Psalm 136. It's this promise that no matter what happens, God is faithful. He will never let go. He will never give up. He will never abandon his people. He will never let down on his part of the deal. And if you go back and you look at those stories, the ones that I had outlined there on that other screen, you realize that in between these celebratory moments, all these wonderful things that God has done, well, there's a whole lot of stories about unfaithful people. People who have not kept their end of the bargain. People who have been unfaithful. And yet, the chorus remains. His steadfast love endures forever. That's the essence. That's the essence of God's covenant. Even if they turn away, even if they're unfaithful, even if they break their vows to him, he will not give up. He'll step in. He'll even pay the penalty that his people owe. And of course, you know what that's ultimately pointing us to, right? It's pointing us to the cross. It's pointing us to that ultimate expression of God's loyal love. That moment in history when, when God fulfilled the covenant that he made with Abram. The moment when God laid down his own life on the cross. When he was torn apart so that we could be made whole. That's the uniqueness of this Hesed love that we're talking about. That God attaches himself to his people so profoundly that he ends up standing in their place. That he takes on our flesh and he becomes our substitute. His faithfulness is, it's never ending. His love is steadfast. He, he is completely and utterly attached to us. 
I like the way that the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it. He says that God loves his people with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. God's love is unique. And so we're singing this song. His steadfast love endures forever. His love endures forever. It's all about how wonderful and how faithful God has been to us. But as we look at this psalm, in light of the cross, we need to remember that God's love is actually meant to do something. It's meant to transform the way that we love one another. In other words, His love endures forever. So what does that mean for the way his people love? If his love endures forever, then how are we supposed to love? Okay, so our service began this morning. We read from Romans chapter 8, that famous passage where Paul talks about the greatness of God's love. We, We said, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that, that's a pretty secure love, right? So keep that in your mind. And hear this really familiar verse from Jesus. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Michael Hendricks, uh, a Christian author, he He paraphrased this to say, as I have deeply attached myself to you, so you must deeply attach yourselves to one another. So let me ask you, is that a description of the church? Let's just talk about it generally first. Let's think about all the Christians that you know. Let's think about all the churches that you've been around, that you're familiar with. Are the relationships that you have observed, are they these kinds of hesed relationships? Are they deeply attached? Are they committed? In my experience, it's usually not that way. Unfortunately, especially as I look around at kind of the modern American evangelical church, what I tend to see is a a much lower standard of commitment than what we see here in Scripture. I see a much lower standard, especially of commitment to one another. I think most Christians, when they think about the ways they view their relationships in the church, those are casual relationships. They're cordial relationships. They're friendly relationships. But they're not a whole lot different than the kinds of relationships you have with other parents on the soccer field or other people at the country club or other co-workers that you have 
in your office. What I'm saying is I know a lot of Christians who, when they think about their church, they think about their church in terms of what they get out of it. Do I like the music? Do I like the preacher? Do I like the programs? Do I have enough in common with the people who go there? Are they my same age? Are they my same education level? Are they my same social status? It's not really about connection. It's not about deep connection. It's about preference. And then, of course, in those kinds of churches, when somebody inevitably changes things, or when somebody says something they don't like, or they do something wrong, well, then that person leaves. And they go find another place that's more suitable to their tastes, their very fine-tuned tastes. Not too long ago, I was speaking with someone, and... I, I didn't know this person very well, but I knew what church they went to. And so I said, hey, how are things going at such and such church? They told me how much they liked it before and all the great things that were happening there. And this person said, oh, actually, well, you know, since the last time I've seen you, God has led me to another church. And I was like, oh, really? Well, well, why is that? She said, well, I found another one that agreed with my politics more. <laughs> now, I, I heard that and I kind of, you know, politely nodded, and the conversation kept going, but, but if I wasn't such a wimp, I think what I would have said is, I'm not so sure that was God. I'm not so sure that was him leading you away from this community that you have made a promise to when they disagreed with your politics. See, friend, the, the church is, is supposed to be more than this. The church is supposed to be characterized by that kind of love we read about in 1 Corinthians where it says love bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. Not a social club that gets broken apart by culture wars. We are called to be a people in Scripture. We're called to be a family. We are called to be deeply attached to one another with a love that endures forever. But when we let petty disagreements drive us apart, when we let our preferences become more important than the people God has given us to love, well, then what happens to us? I'll tell you what happens. We become... A lifeless institution. When we maintain these shallow relationships that, that bear no sense of commitment to each other, when we don't really know each other, we short-circuit the transformation that is supposed to be happening here. When we run away from conflict, instead of leaning into it and pursuing reconciliation we miss out on one of the main ways that God intends to work in our lives and to make us more like him so often I see people leaving communities at the exact moment when it seems like God is getting ready to work in their lives but thankfully there is still plenty of hope for us here see 
I'm not telling you this just to lay a guilt trip on you. I'm not telling you all this to say, we as Christians need to work harder to love better and be more. No, this passage isn't here to scold us, actually. The passage is supposed to mesmerize us. It's supposed to give us this picture of something beautiful, of something better, of something more. It's meant to get our hearts caught up in this beautiful reality that God's love endures forever. Scripture says that when we see that love, that steadfast love, that hesed love, when we experience this love that goes on forever ourselves, when we start to look into the awesome face of God and we see him delighting in us, well, it transforms us. I don't know if I have it up here. I probably don't. But it's in 2 Corinthians, the verse that says, We all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed. Oh, there it is. Into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. So look at this refrain again. His love endures forever. Or maybe you know the King James Version. His mercy endureth forever. Well, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that, that his love is there for you right now. His mercy is available here in this room for you right now at this very moment. His mercy is for you. There is nobody that's too far off. There is no one who would, would not be welcomed and guaranteed God's love if they come to Jesus in faith. And it means that once you know him, once you know his love, there's no chance that the well will ever run dry. The steadfast love of God, it's not there to make us feel guilty, but it's there to make us free. Think about the implications. If his love endures forever for us, well, then that means we can be honest about who we really are, doesn't it? We don't have to worry that we're going to be kicked out. We don't have to worry that we're going to be ostracized. We don't have to worry that somebody's going to leave us because his mercy endures forever. That means that we, we can also be merciful people to others. It means we can be vulnerable people. People who are not afraid to let our guard down. Not individuals off sitting by ourselves in the back row, keeping people at arm's length, going home immediately and not seeing anyone else until next Sunday. Afraid of being known. Afraid of being exposed. Ready to jump ship at the first sign of conflict. You see, his hesed love is not just something that we get as the people of God, but it, it's not just something we receive, but it's something that we get to give to one another. Because God has deeply attached himself to us, we should deeply attach ourselves to one another. It means we can be a family here, not just an institution. We can see this steadfast love that we're talking about. We can see it brought to life. And that's the final thing I want to 
mention here this morning is that when we do that, when we love each other this way, it creates a family that the whole world is looking for. I understand when you talk about these ideas in Scripture, it can almost sound too good to be true. Especially if you're a skeptic. Especially if you've seen churches and you've never seen anything like this before. Or, or if you've been around the church a long time and you've been burnt and you say, oh no, I'm not going to do that again. I don't believe it's possible. But here's where I actually want to just take a moment and talk about one of the great gifts that I think we have here at Center Church. What we have in our midst in this room is we have some people who have some experience with God. Amen? You know what I mean? I think the thing that makes this psalm so powerful is that it's meant to be a testimony. It's a bunch of people gathered together saying what God has done. Step by step, they're reminding themselves of what God has already done in ancient history, but then all the way up into the present day. Until they finally get to this point where they're even showing that the evidence of God's love is it's just some relatively mundane stuff. He says that in verse 25, he gives food to every creature. That's an evidence that God's love endures forever. There is a great power behind the witness of the saints. There is a great power to your story of how God has been faithful across your lifetime. And many of you, you have some great stories, right? Do you know right now that this town where we live is full of young men and women who are drowning under the busyness of careers and children who need to hear your story? They need to hear you say, I have been in that place. I have lived through it and his love endured forever. This town's full of single people who are anxious about what their future might look like. And they need to hear your testimony. When I was there, God, love endured for me. There are people in this town who are experiencing loss who are dealing with stress, who are going through the challenges of adolescence, the challenges of college, the challenges of marriage, the challenges of divorce. And they're wondering, is God really good? And some of you have been there. And you can tell them firsthand the truth of this passage, his love endures forever. I know sometimes we start to think as, as we age, some of you, as you, you get gray hair, you think, well, maybe it's time for me to step aside and let the next generation take over. But I want you to look at this song, and I want you to know that the next generation needs you to be the one who carries the tune. They need your faith. 
They need your life. They need your wisdom and your experience to anchor them when the waters start to get rough. Do you know that this generation that's coming up right now is more open to counselors and coaches and, and advisors than any other generation that's come up before it? Do you realize that? These are young people who are longing for someone who would just grab a hold of their shoulders and say, it's going to be all right. What a wealth of resources we have here. People who know the truth of this. That's what this generation needs. Not the people who just sing this song like a new convert, hoping, believing in faith, but a people who can sing with that full-throated, knowing voice. His love endures forever. You're the people who can say, I know this. I can tell it to you firsthand. You can trust him. You can trust his people. He's not going to let you go. And neither will we. That's how this kind of community gets formed. That's how this kind of family gets made. It happens when we're honest. It happens when we share the, the gritty and the real parts of our story that everybody else is tempted to hide. And I know that sounds idealistic. I know for some of you, you think the church can't be that kind of family. It can't really. That's, that's, that's something that we read about in books. You might be thinking, it's going to take a miracle for something like that to happen. Well, here's the good news. That's exactly what we have. That's exactly the story we're living. Jesus came, and he died, and he rose again, and his resurrection life is working in our midst right now. And the more we sing it together, his love endures forever. His love endures forever. Each day of our life, as we see him provide again, each moment as we repent of our sins and we believe anew, as we see that his mercy is new for us every morning, as we find him faithful, that we're still safe, that we're still secure, that we're still welcomed, that we're still loved, as those gospel roots grow deep in our lives, that resurrection life builds up in us. It makes us come alive. It makes us become that kind of community where we can do these things, where we can be loved, where we won't be rejected, where we can really be known. I know you want that. The whole world wants that. That's what we're all looking for, and that's what God gives us here in the church. And the more we see that, the more that Hesed love is flowing out of this congregation, I know it's going to become an irresistible force drawing in more and more people who are going to sing this song with us. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good.
His love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we look with hope to your word. We want to be a part of this kind of community. And I thank you, God, that you have shown yourself to so many people here. That there is no shortage of men and women who can sing this song with a deep knowledge. I pray, God, that you would help us to share that good news with the world. I pray that you'd help us to uplift and support those who are struggling around us. I pray, God, that you would call each one of us here into our powerful ministry with the next generation. We pray for the future of this church, that it will be as bright as our past, that we would stand upon this strong foundation of how you've worked throughout our history, and that we would sing your song a new generation. We pray in Christ's name.